Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing very well. I have on the line Dr. Dan Edmonds. Uh, Dr. Edmonds' private practice of psychotherapy for children, adolescents, and adults is located in Tunkhannock, Pennsylvania. Dr. Edmonds is one of the few offering a holistic, drug-free, relationship-based approach that encourages self-determination, autonomy, and dignity. Dr. Edmonds' work has focused on drug-free approaches to attentional concerns, what is labeled attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, relational approaches for autism and developmental differences, resolving traumatic stress, assisting troubled children and teens, and helping individuals be able to understand and manage extreme states of mind such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Dr. Edmonds has developed the Northeastern Pennsylvania Autism Acceptance Project. Thank you so much, Dr. Edmonds, for taking the time to have a conversation today. Yes, thank you. I noticed in one of your YouTube videos, and I want to make this distinction clear from the beginning, that while you are critical, if I understand this correctly, while you were critical of medically-based psychiatry, uh, you would not want to be in the same category of what is commonly called the anti-psychiatry movement. Is that a fair distinction? Well, to, to some degree, yes, that, that, that I would want to make that distinction. That, that I believe that there are people who are in distress that are in need of support. So I am, I'm not denying that there may be the need to provide assistance to those individuals. I guess my issue is the methods of going about that. I think that oftentimes with the current psychiatric establishment that we have this reductionist idea that everything is purely a result of some type of chemical process. So the whole experience of the individual and just the, the respect and dignity and, and the need to, to build a connection and a relationship with them is not really a part of, of what is going on with the establishment at the moment. Right. And from a purely scientific standpoint, there's a great deal to be criticized, if not tossed out the entire window of the biochemical model of mental illness, because there is, in fact, as far as I understand it, there is no physiological test for mental illness, uh, and there is no chemical imbalance that is actually being addressed by the medication. Uh, there, there is nothing that really you can find that, that substantiates that, that it's in the idea of theory, but it continues to perpetuate itself because that's unfortunately where the profits lie. Mm. Now, every generation of psychiatry seems to have had its theory. Um, early 1900s, it was improper blood flow to the brain is right. what was causing these issues. And, and you see that, that it evolved, but what sadly was connected to each of those theories was usually treatments that often were very brutal. Um, so that, that's what I've tried to challenge as well, is many of the clients that I see in my practice are people who have been through the gamut of psychiatric intervention and come out far more damaged. And so part of my work is, unfortunately, to actually sometimes undo that damage that the psychiatric system has actually evoked upon them in addition to the, the traumas that they might have already experienced in their lives. 
Right. Now, if I understand this correctly, uh, I mean, I have my own model for mental illness, but since I have an expert on the call, I might as well defer to somebody who actually knows what he's talking about. Uh, what is your approach to the model of mental dysfunction if it's not sort of biochemical or, you know, balancing out the humorous, so to speak? Or what is your approach or what do you think is going on when people are experiencing these extreme mental states? Well, a lot of, of my focus in, in the, the work I've done in what I've written about is that these are not just merely chemical processes, but we have social, political, and familial processes that are going on that pull us in different directions, and people react and respond to that in different ways. So that's, that's what really has to be looked upon. Now, what I've argued as well is that the the role of the therapist is not just, we have to break down these barriers. So the role is to make that connection on an equal plane. But aside from that, to also I think the, the activist role is very important. That if we were actually out there making the changes within our society, that are necessary if we're alleviating oppression, then the means, the, the things that were, would be necessary to provide to mentally distressed people, uh, we wouldn't have to be doing this because the, the things that cause emotional distress wouldn't be there. Right. Okay. So the things that cause emotional distress, I uh, wonder if you could go a little bit more into what you've experienced in your practice uh, as to the source of this. Well, I have, I have seen individuals where I think that sometimes it, it becomes things that originate in the family that are cycles, and it's not to blame the family because I think that many times they're, they're not even aware of some of the dynamics that are going on, but it, it seems to go in cycles. So you see these traumas that just continue forward. I also believe that when we put people in oppressive situations, whatever, whatever they may be. It, it could be an economic situation that I think that this causes great stresses upon people. So we need to alleviate those sort of things. But, but I really believe that, that, that the basis for most of what gets labeled as mental disorders is usually centered on some type of traumatic event. And that's been my experience. And now, would you say uh, traumatic event or a sort of traumatic environment where there's a repetitive uh, stressors? I believe it could be both. Right, right. And can you give an example, some examples of what sort of stressors or traumatic events uh, you feel uh, most contribute towards the development of uh, these sorts of issues? Usually, well, when I'm dealing with those that are in the more extreme states of mind, what I have found is that usually you have a initial trauma that happens very early on, usually sometimes within the first year of life. Then there is a second subsequent trauma, which then that's when the onset of symptoms arise hmm. and you begin to see that the person just begin to kind of lose themselves in, in, in the process of disintegration uh, based on, on that second trauma that, that seems to actually shift them back 
to, to an earlier state of mind. So that becomes part of the process as well, is to not only to understand their experience, um, but to also try to, to move them into a direction where that they are able to enter back into that adult state of mind. Right. And I would assume that we're talking about significant traumas. And, and the word trauma, of course, is, is complicated, but you're not talking about, I saw my parents fighting. Uh, you may be talking about things right. like we're, we're talking about something that's or... far, far more significant than that. And, and usually uh, patterns of communication that are very damaging, that just continue to perpetuate. And, and this person is usually encountering these things on a daily basis. So part of part of what gets labeled schizophrenia and so forth is actually that is a coping mechanism. It's a way for them to live in a situation which they find basically unbearable. So they develop that this is a strategy for them, basically for them to be able to survive in, in that circumstance. Now, I, that's the other thing that I've worked with as well, that I, I've noticed that many people tend to look at that experience that if, if a person is going through some type of psychosis, that this is not intelligible, it, you can't understand what the person is saying. But what I have realized is that much of what goes on in this experience is very metaphorical. So the person may actually be telling you the truth, and it's something about their experience, something about their story, but it becomes necessary to make that connection to, so that you can decipher what these metaphors might mean. Sort of like a, a waking dream, if that makes any sense. Yes, yes, that, that, that is a good example of what I would describe the, the experience of these individuals to be. Um, and in one of the books that I wrote, it, it, was, uh, it was interesting how that came about, that, that a person who had gone through a psychotic episode um, had written to me and said that most within the establishment had no idea of how to understand or connect with him as to what, where, what he had actually experienced. So he had written a journal during the time that he was undergoing this and asked if I would read through this and give commentary as to what I thought he was trying to say. Hmm. So I did that, gave, sent this back to him, and, and it evolved into a book because he said that, that what I had written back to him was exactly what he was trying to relate. Now, most would look at his journal and say, okay, these are just random ramblings, don't have any significance at all. But actually, if, if we really examine it, even though it's steeped in this metaphor, it did tell something very important about what his experience is. And I, I think that's also part of the problem with the psychiatric establishment is that it's much easier to bring someone in for a short period of time and give them a drug and send them on their way than to actually take the time necessary to relate to them as a fellow human being. Well, and I would, I would, I think also argue that 
it's not just the time within the office that is much more significant. You really can't see any deeper into other people than you've seen into yourself. So the amount of self-work, self-knowledge, self-examination that is required to truly help people suffering from a spiritual crisis is significant, whereas, you know, going to some drug, I'm going to trivialize it, but going to some drug company dinners, reading some studies and experimenting with some cocktails is much easier than the kind of self-knowledge that is required to truly help people who are suffering from this kind of history. Absolutely. I, I, I think that, that, that that's one of the aspects, too, is, is that it, I look at it, it's, it's a process, a meeting of two persons coming together, trying to lay aside bears, trying to understand each other's experience. So I sometimes feel that the therapist often has much to learn from the client. But I think that that is also part of the problem within psychiatry today is that we have this imbalance and this abuse of power. And, I, and I've seen this with many individuals who have come to me where they have been in hospital settings or residential settings, and there's always this power and intimidation. And, mm. and I see this as well with uh, families with children who unfortunately were prescribed various psychiatric drugs and ended up being damaged from them, having adverse events. And many times the parents, part of the, the problem was that they had trusted the doctor that they looked at, okay, the psychiatrist is in this esteemed role, so therefore we can trust what they say without really looking at all of the the dynamics that actually influence psychiatrists today and, and, the, and many of the conflicts of interest that exist uh, in regards to the pharmaceutical industry. Right, right. And, I mean, again, I, I understand that there's sensitivity to blaming the parents, but I think it's probably reasonable to say that parents who have acted in abusive or destructive manners towards their children would might also have a special eagerness to look at a medical model rather than look at their own behavior? Yes. Yes, I, I, I do believe that, that the this medical model is something that those unfortunate parents that, that really don't have the attachment to their children, it exonerates them. And it also provides the opportunity for various institutions to be exonerated. So if there is something within, let's say, a child is struggling at school, and maybe there's some change that needs to happen within that academic environment, it's much easier to instead blame the brain of the child and say, well, it's this child is disordered, rather than to look at, okay, we have a broken educational system and we need to fix that. Right, or a broken social system as a, as a whole with atomized families, a lack of extended family, a lack of resources, particularly for single parents uh, who are often women. There's a lot that is contributing to dysfunction in children and, of course, if the children have had a negative or destructive exposure to authority in the past, then dragging them and giving them the label of physiologically damaged is, I think, just a tragic continuation of that abuse. 
Oh yeah, well, it, it, it's certainly a lie that is perpetuated, but it, but it certainly, if we're looking at everything as simply a chemical process, that this is why people are distressed and all of these things are occurring, then of course, we're, if that's the case, then we're not going to feel the need to put any energy into making any type of social change whatsoever. Oh, it is, you know, and I, I think I echo that. It, it is a terrible tragedy of society that children tend to be the variable that has changed the most when they come up against structures within society that are unfriendly towards their needs, whether it's uh, parent, parents or, or schools or churches or whatever. So, so often it is the children who have to change in order to fit into the structure rather than adapting the structure to meet the children's needs, which is truly tragic and I think is going to give children quite a cynical view of uh, how society views childhood. Absolutely. Now, that's, that's been an argument that I've had, too, as far as what exactly are therapists doing. And sometimes I see that without even realizing that the therapist themselves is sometimes becoming an oppressor, that some of the work that you see with some therapists is to simply make the person conform to an environment that maybe could be quite damaging to them, or there may be things that are, that are very, very wrong with that setting, but okay, we're going to just have them cope with it and have them conform, or worst case scenario, to use force and coercion to make a person do certain things. So I, I think that, that that's, that's what we have to, to look at, too, is the idea that we don't want to be in that oppressive role, that, that we want to be able to look at the person as able to make decisions themselves, to respect their autonomy. Can you just, I just want to make sure I understand that last part, if you could expand on it a bit more. Well, what, what I'm saying is, is, is to, that we need to respect the autonomy of the client, of, to respect them as a fellow human being. But, but I, I see so many times that that's not what's happening. That if we, I will, I'll give the example. If we had a child who, let's say that they're, the parents are fighting with one another constantly and, and there's all of these dynamics and they live in a neighborhood where they're very impoverished. Um, some of the role of the therapist would be, okay, well, you just have to deal with that. That's, that's your lot. That's what you have to deal with, cope with right. it. Rather than saying, okay, what can we actually do? do with this situation to improve the life of this individual? And, 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 and I guess the more important question is, what does this individual want? Right. So, and I think that also will contribute. I mean, one of the things that, that I think is almost definitional when it comes to uh, mental dysfunction is that there has to have been some trauma that was impossible to change or to overcome. In other words, if it's coming from your, your parents and as a child, if you sort of resist or complain and it only intensifies the trauma, then you're in the situation where you can't change your environment, therefore you have to adapt to it. And uh, of course, then if, if the therapist says, well, you now have to adapt to this other situation called social injustice or poverty, it's further contributing, I think, to that sense of helplessness, if that makes any sense. Yes, absolutely. And and then the worst case scenario is is that if if we can't just by talking to you 
change you and make you conform to the way that things are, then we will drug you to make you conform to how we want you to behave. Um, so it, it it becomes, particularly for children, it becomes a, a very brutal thing because there are many times the, the children's voices are completely silenced. Now, that's been my argument, too, that many of the individuals that are going through extreme states of mind that they need, even though this process can be painful and difficult, they need to go through that process and to have supportive individuals around them. But it seems that the psychiatric establishment, that the the goal and objective simply is suppression that if a person is going through any type of unusual experience that mm. doesn't fit into a certain category of what someone has defined that it should be, that automatically, okay, we need to make that go away. We need to shut that down and mm. suppress it. Uh, but as I said, that the, sometimes I think that people need to go through this, be supported, and they can emerge from it and it can actually be something insightful to them. It doesn't have to be just a breakdown. It can actually be a breakthrough if if the right dynamics are there. Right. Right. And I, I suppose that in, in the psychiatric model, the social environment is generally perceived to be sane, and therefore the dysfunction must be crazy on the part of the person who cannot adapt to the sane social environment. Whereas if some skepticism is applied to the possibility or to the to the assumption that society is sane and we could say well there are certain aspects of society that are not uh, mentally healthy then a failure to adapt to that which is not mentally healthy may in fact be a symptom of sanity rather than craziness but if you simply say well the environment is always sane therefore a failure to adapt to it is crazy that's actually kind of like a soviet model you know where if you weren't a good party member you must be mentally ill or it's like this 1980 i know it's not that extreme but it's like this 1984 model that you must be fixed to conform to the uh, sane and healthy environment because any failure to adapt to, to it must just be crazy in and of itself right absolutely uh, now the, the other part that ties in with that is the idea of what recovery actually is. That the way that the establishment looks at it is that a person who is a lifelong consumer of psychiatric drugs, who is simply maintained and has a menial job, that's looked upon, okay, well, they're, they're recovering. Hmm. But to me, that's not recovery at all. That a, a true sense of recovery would be that the person being able to actually emerge from the challenges that they have had with new insights and to feel that they truly have supports. Um, and there was, there was a study that was done um, in... New York, and it was very unfortunate. They took 9,000 people that were involved in the mental health system and all of them taking uh, psychiatric drugs. And of them, only five of that 9,000 actually had 
meaningful employment. Sorry, not, you mean not five. 5%, but five people. Five people, not 5%, five. Wow. Uh, most of them were on some type of disability. They were not working. They, they, they were maintained on drugs, and, and they weren't causing, they were not being disturbing to anyone. So therefore, in the, the way the establishment looked at it, is, okay, well, all those other people, oh, well, they're recovering too. But were they? And were they truly happy? Were they truly content? No, and they, they were not. But I, I think that, that that's something that needs to be explored further, is really this concept of what, what does recovery actually mean? Well, I mean, from other models, uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenge, right? Because, of course, uh, recovery from a broken leg is you can use your leg again as if it were not broken. That's the ideal functioning. Um, but we don't, I think, have a very good definition in society of what it means to have a not broken mind. Uh, because, of course, there's lots of things in society that uh, may be viewed from a philosophical standpoint as completely mad. Uh, and things like nationalism or patriotism or, uh, you know, the, the war hunger or, or that sort of stuff uh, that is considered socially acceptable to the point where people can put bumper stickers on their car proclaiming their love of these things, which, you know, philosophically seem quite mad. And uh, I think that is um, that is the real challenge that is bypassed through this medical model. It's the challenge of examining society from, you know, core principles or first principles and saying, well, where does society as a whole, which is largely inherited and not designed, where does it fit on the continuum of rational values? We just say, well, society is sane, these people are crazy, they have to be drugged to fit it. And that results, I think, in having a bad model of what mental health actually means. And the psychiatric model has been heavily criticized for not having a model of what mental health actually means and really creating definitions by which just about anybody could be perceived as dysfunctional. Well, that, that's absolutely true as well. That, that the, as the DSM has evolved, it started out with around 60 disorders. Now we have close to 400, and really anyone at any point in time could be diagnosed with something that... And it's, it's, so it's sort of evolved into a modern version of sin, you know, like, in, of course, the original Catholic conception of, of, of original sin, you were simply born uh, unwell spiritually and you had to be cured. And if you could define anybody and everybody at some point in their lives or just about at any point in their lives as having a mental problem, uh, it's quite a ka moment for the, 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 the money machines, if that makes any sense. Yes. Now... We could also look at that. It, some would argue, okay, well, if a a person is a danger, then somehow we must intervene and do something with them. But uh, the, the fact of the matter is that most of the folks that end up in the psychiatric system are not always dangerous. And if we were to make that argument, I, I believe that we could find plenty of people who are our political leaders that are probably far more dangerous than anyone who is probably sitting in a mental hospital. Well, I mean, uh, is somebody who, who orders the illegal invasion of another country is, to my mind, uh, spiritually and mentally ill beyond words, whereas somebody who is uh, protesting that and may get in trouble with the law, you could say is far healthier from a moral standpoint. So uh, these kinds of questions and, and recalibrations 
I think are very fundamentally opposed by the psychiatric view. It's very anti-philosophical because it says what is is healthy and what uh, what doesn't conform to it is problematic. That stops us from asking the questions about the sanity of the environment that we place particularly children in. So I, I think that we have to look at that, that psychiatry really is not a branch of medicine. It's really a branch of the law and social control. It's, it's mm. under the guise of medicine, but that's not really what it is. And there isn't a general skepticism in society about it. I mean, if I have, I don't know, some infection, I go to my doctor and she says, you know, have some medicine. I don't sit there and say, oh, yeah, well, show me the studies. Yeah, I just kind of accept because I can assume that, that that kind of medicine is pretty well proven, and I think with good reason. But that same skepticism does not seem to be very present in the realm of psychiatry. And that is, uh, I think that's a problem. In terms of the regulation, it's a huge problem. Of course, uh, uh, you actually have to prove an illness and then a cure in most areas of medicine, except in, in the field of psychiatry, where it's, you know, this medical model, this, this uh, imbalance of chemicals model is just put forward where there's no, it seems to me, virtually no or no scientific proof for it. There is a lack of regulation, a lack of perception that we're dealing with sort of a, a voodoo science, uh, if I can use that phrase. Do you think that's uh, that seems to be changing a little bit? There does seem to be, particularly with the Internet, more resources available to people who are skeptical of the psychiatric model. What's your view of how generally society is perceiving this approach? I believe that there is becoming a gradual awareness and that there are alternatives made available. What I do that is unfortunate is that it tends to be that those who are wealthy or have the resources are the ones who are able to have the alternatives, whereas those who are poor, particularly you see with the, the poor children, they are the ones who are going to be stuck with the toxic psychiatric drugs and basically the, the the treatments that, uh, or so-called treatments that are that are, are not truly helpful. Um, right. Sorry, go ahead. And uh, so, well, you see that they, that they have various managed care outfits. Uh, if the, the way, if the children or even adults are poor and they are on some type of a state benefit, the the state basically dictates what type of care that they can receive so so that becomes a problem as well that 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 those that are in that particular uh situation where they're disadvantaged um they're they're not going to have the access to these alternatives they're they're going to be stuck with the of, of what the establishment has laid out for them right i mean certainly talk therapy is quite it remains quite an elitist endeavor uh, I certainly, I, I did a couple of years of talk therapy and it was not cheap, though I will absolutely say it was without a doubt the best money I have ever spent in my life, but it certainly wasn't cheap. Uh, and, uh, of course, as you say, relative to spending 50 minutes, you know, filling in some check boxes and throwing some pills someone's way, it is much more expensive and much more, um, strenuous from a spiritual standpoint for both the, the therapist and the patient, uh, as opposed to just this magic wand of the medical model where, uh, oh, I, you know, I just basically have to get a cast on my brain and I'm, I'm all better. And 
so I think you're right. It is really, uh, it, it does slant towards those who have more resources. Uh, and that really is tragic because, of course, the people who are the poorest need that kind of help the most, and they seem to be getting it the least. Right. And, and but what I see, too, happening, particularly with the tie-in with the pharmaceutical industry, is that it's, that that's become the the basis is that everything is based on profit of how and to some extent unfortunately some within the establishment are profiting off of the suffering of others and profiting massively off of the suffering of others um and that that that's something that that I think is needs to be dramatically changed as well. And, and that, t- that ties back in with my idea of the social problems that are creating and generating distress. And I, and I think part of it is the capitalistic society that we live in puts people into these situations where many are just in survival mode. They, they don't have the time to spend with their families anymore. They're just trying to be able to stay afloat and survive. And I, I think that putting people in these conditions, this, this, this is why we're seeing so much emotional distress. And I also believe that the, the rise in violence that we see is connected to that. Plus, I also believe that there's a tie-in with the psychiatric drugs themselves that during the 90s, this was referred to as the decade of the brain. This, this is when we saw an explosion of the use of stimulants for so-called ADHD. We saw the antidepressants booming. And I believe that we're starting to deal with the aftermath of all of that because many of these drugs do induce violence. That is something that I was quite shocked, like literally like got hair went up on my forearms when I first began reading this connection between, say, for instance, school shootings or other forms of homicidal uh, acting out and the the, the just about everybody who has uh, gone through these uh, rampages uh, has been on psychiatric drugs of one kind or another. That seems to me something that a society that really cared about its kids, which we, of course, claim to as a society, and every time you turn on the news, there's some damn report about some common household implement that might be dangerous for your children. And we're worried about lead in paint in toys coming from China, one in a million and, and BPA and so on. And yet this, this stuff, which can produce just staggeringly violent outbursts in people, it was not something I was even aware of until I began researching this sort of stuff, which seems a, a pretty hideous omission on the part of the media. Oh, it, it, it most definitely is a, is a terrible omission, but I, I think it, it's rather intentional. Mm. Right. I would say um, that my approach to analyzing this, again, you know, amateur layperson, so take it with as much salt as you want, but um, I think that the role of the state in, in funding and promoting this kind of stuff and, and subsidizing it, uh, certainly up here in Canada, psychiatry is, is uh, state-subsidized. In fact, it's state-paid for completely, whereas uh, psychology is not. Uh, that slants things particularly towards this. I also think that when the state is facing highly dysfunctional and rigid bureaucracies within its own environment, I think in particularly with the government-run and controlled and funded uh, school system, uh, it it would rather, in a sense, promote the drugging of children rather than having the courage as as political leaders, having the courage to take on 
dysfunctional, non-child-centered educational bureaucracies and institutions, I think that would go a long way towards uh, towards changing this kind of stuff. Um, and of course, uh, I think you're quite right to say that uh, families have far fewer resources to deal with problems now than they did a couple of generations ago. I mean, in the 50s, one parent could work and be, I mean, it's not a perfect decade, but one parent could work while the other one stayed at home to raise kids. Now, uh, I think the majority of, of parents are both working, which gives them very little time or resources to to deal with these kinds of problems. And they think they reach for that uh, medical model almost to the huge sigh of relief. Yes, absolutely. Now, uh, for people, I, I want to make sure that you have the, uh, the opportunity to provide your website and also if there are other resources that you think are valuable for people who, who listen to this who might want to explore more uh, some, some of the anti-psychiatry movement does seem to be a little bit on the extreme side, and, and uh, I'm sure that's true of every, uh, I mean, it's, it's all a bell curve when it comes to, to criticisms of any institution. Uh, where do you think people should go if they have, uh, I mean, your website, of course, but other places where they could go, where they could get more information about uh, ways to, to begin to understand the, the limitations of the psychiatric model? Uh, there's two other organizations that I've dealt with that I think provide very good resources. One is the uh, Center for the Study of Psychiatry and Psychology, which is basically a coalition of mental health professionals who see some of the problems within the system and, are, and have had the courage to actually uh, speak out. Um, the other uh, is the International Society for the psychosocial treatment of schizophrenia. And this is an organization that, that looks at extreme states of mind um, and tries to find drug-free approaches to, to helping these individuals that are going through uh, this type of experience. Um, the other, uh, there is what's known as the Spiritual Emergence Network uh, that was formed by Dr. Stanislav uh, Groff, and I think that, that he, this is also a, a very uh, important resource because I think that, that many of the individuals that are going through difficult experiences, that, that, that really it is a spiritual dilemma for them, and to be able to find the support to go through this and to be able to emerge from it and, and to continue to have that support uh, down the road. Well, I appreciate that. And I really do want to thank you for the work that you're doing and the time that you've you spent explaining your approach. I think it's really fascinating. And some of the uh, experts in the field that I've interviewed recently have truly blown my mind about uh, things that I assumed were more on the medical side have actually been uh, more uh, accessible and, and treatable by talk therapy. And I think that's something that I really want people to encourage if you're, if you're dealing with these kinds of issues. Don't just assume the psychiatric model is valid. Do talk to a talk therapist, because the talk therapy has actually been scientifically validated as producing significant and permanent improvements in people's state of mind, which uh, the psychiatric model has not been proven to achieve that and is not treating any identifiable medical complaint, at least according to the research that I've done. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing, and thank you so much for taking the time. I'll be sure to put your website and the websites uh, of that you've mentioned uh, on this uh, recording, and uh, I wish you all the very best. Hey, thank you very much. Bye-bye.